God, it's funny, we, we listen to the beauty of a song and, and even captivated by the melody and the way that uh, the, the harp and the violin fit together and we are reminded, God, of your beauty. God, Romans 1 says that, that from the beginning of time, your creation declares or has declared your splendor. God, even uh, knowing this, this man that we're studying, uh, David, uh, was a harp player. And so we're reminded, God, that we... Um, can experience your beauty, we can see your majesty, and we're drawn into your presence by this thing called music, and so we're so grateful for that gift this morning. God, as we um, go to your word together, as we listen uh, to what you have to say today, may there be nothing of us that gets in the way and distracts. May it be you and you alone that speaks to us uh, this morning. In the name of Christ, uh, the people of God together said, Amen. Well, we left last week with this one statement that God is still in the business of conquering Goliaths. God is still in the business of conquering Goliaths. He did so in 1 Samuel 17 through a young man named David, and he conquered the real Goliath. But God is still in the business of taking down those enemies in our life that seem unconquerable, that seem invincible. God still does miracles today. So today, we're going to try to answer two questions, two and only two. Number one, what makes a real Goliath? What makes a real Goliath? That's question number one. And two, how do I posture myself? How do I position myself? How do I, in a sense, get out of God's way so he can do his thing? So that's where we're headed this morning. And by way of introduction, I wanted to talk about my marriage a little bit. Some of you are already groaning. It's my wife that's groaning the loudest, but that's beside the point. The point is this. I don't know about you, but in my marriage, one of the number one reasons that Amy and I fight are, is mismatched expectations. Expectations of who will take out the trash or where we're going on vacation or whose family we'll spend Thanksgiving with or what time we'll get up in the morning or how we'll spend God's money. Whatever it is, Amy expects one thing, I expect another. And when our expectations don't match, we get disillusioned, disappointed, and disconnected. Anybody, can I get an amen in your marriage? You mismatched expectations. Do not nudge your spouse. And looking back over 17 years of vocational ministry experience, for some of you, you have grandkids my age, so 17 years doesn't feel like a long time. For me, it's about half my life. So it does feel like a long time. 17 years of vocational ministry experience, it seems to me, That other than just outright selfishness, the number one reason people make mistakes in life is because of mismatched expectations with God. Mismatched expectations with God. The reason that people walk away from church or they walk away from their marriage or become disillusioned or angry with God or even abandon God altogether is that God doesn't live up to expectations. And when our expectations of God don't match our experience of God, sometimes we get ticked and walk away. And sometimes it's for a short time, sometimes it's for a lifetime, but the reason that many people walk away from God is because God doesn't live up to expectations. I want to give you a few examples so we can kind of wrap our heads around this together. I'm going to quote a couple of very, very famous uh, passages that people quote from the Bible all the time. Here's one of them. God helps those who help themselves. 
quote that verse from the Bible all the time. I hear that quoted all the time. How about God won't give you anything you can't handle? People quote that all the time. Or, or uh, this too shall pass. Of course, the this too shall pass proverb from First Hesitations, very, very famous Bible book. Uh, this too shall pass. How many of you have heard one of those verses quoted before? Anybody? One of those verses? Here's the bummer. None of them are in the Bible. That's the bummer. Not one of them is in the Bible. And so not one of them is actually true about God. Come by my office sometime. I will tell you why. Here's the deal. Here's where we're starting. If we base our expectations of God on things that aren't true about God, can you imagine the chaos that would cause in our relationship with God and in our lives? Craziness. If we base our expectations of God on things that aren't true about God, it's going to create a lot of chaos, a lot of turmoil, a lot of difficulty and challenges in our life. And and here's where we're headed today. You want to know one of the most common false expectations people have about God? Here it is. Here's one of the most common. Why won't God conquer this Goliath for me? Why won't God conquer this Goliath for me? I expect that he will, and he's not. And now my expectations and my experience do not match. Now, people may not say it exactly that way. They may not use that language, but that's what they mean. They come into my office, or a friend comes to see me, or they even talk directly to God about it. There's something going on in their life that they want God to fix or conquer or change. And God says, wait, 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 wait. Just because you say it's a Goliath doesn't mean I agree with you. And just because you expect that I conquer it doesn't mean that I will. I'm not a genie. You don't rub the God lamp with a little prayer, and then I grant you three wishes. I'm not a puppet. I'm God. I determine what is and is not a Goliath. In other words, God says, please adjust your expectations. So that's where I want to start today, making sure that our expectations match God's in the answer to this one simple question. What makes a real Goliath? What makes a real Goliath? Because if we label things Goliaths that aren't really Goliaths and we expect God to conquer them and then he doesn't, we're going to get disillusioned, disappointed, angry, and disconnected from God. So we have to be on the same page, playing from the same sheet of music with Jesus when it comes to that simple question, what makes a real Goliath? And here's why I want to start there. Because I want to save you a truckload of unnecessary heartache and disappointment. I don't want for you to go around expecting God will intervene and conquer Goliath on your behalf when he really isn't interested in doing so because it's not a real Goliath. I want you to avoid disappointment, and it is avoidable by allowing God to set expectations, allowing him to determine when, where, why, and how he will intervene. And in answering that question, what makes a real Goliath, we will answer the question that we left ourselves last week, which is, how do I position myself? How do I posture myself so that God conquers Goliaths in and through me? So question number one, what makes a real Goliath? Here's point number one, and we're going to be pulling uh, principles from the text we studied last week, 1 Samuel 17. If you've got your Bible, you can open up to 1 Samuel 17. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. Scripture is up on the screen. There's also a Bible in the seat back in front of you. We'll be in 1 Samuel 17, and we're going to answer that question, what makes a real Goliath? Number one, if you're taking notes, here it is. 
real Goliaths attempt to rob God of the glory He deserves. Real Goliaths attempt to rob God of the glory He deserves. Now, this phrase, God's glory, or the glory of God, can kind of lose its meaning a bit because we use it so often. I'm not saying we use it less. I'm just saying let's define it together. We tend to kind of forget what it really means. So, so just a reminder, when the Bible talks about God's glory, it talks about the glory of God, it's typically talking about one of two things. First, when the Bible talks about God's glory, it's talking about a full-orbed picture of his character. His, his character. When Moses says to God, show me your glory, he's asking God to take a divine iPhone and shoot a panoramic picture of himself. He's saying, reveal all of who you are to me. Reveal your glory, the entirety of your character. I want to see the complete picture, your justice, your mercy, your compassion, grace, holiness, all of it. That's his glory, his character, the full panoramic picture. Number two, when the Bible talks about God's glory, it talks about his fame. His fame. Now, now the tabloids have kind of ruined that word fame because we've made people famous for being famous. You know what I'm talking about? Which is very weird, by the way. Like, what do the Kardashians do? They be famous. I don't know. I, that's, what they, that's, what, that, that's what they do. I've heard Kim Kardashian's record. She definitely does not sing. Can we edit that out of the podcast after the fact? Okay, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. But, but, but here, here's the way the dictionary defines fame. Listen, it's the condition of being known or talked about by many people, especially on the count of notable achievements. Fame is the condition of being known or talked about by many people, especially on account of notable achievements. So when the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, here's what they're saying. I, the heavens, am God's notable achievement. And because of me, he deserves to be known or talked about by many people. This is glory. The full orb picture of his character and his fame. You know that throughout Goliath's entire interaction with the nation of Israel, he questions God's glory. He, he pushes back on God's character. He pushes back on God's fame. He says that panoramic picture of God's character has a flaw, and that flaw is his power. I'm more powerful than him. He's not powerful enough to stop me. Do you see how he's questioning the full orb picture of his character? He's pushing back. He, he says, God doesn't deserve fame. God doesn't deserve recognition for notable achievements. I do. I do. And my gods do as well. In my opinion, Goliath's boldest statement shows up in verse 43. If you've got your Bibles, look at verse 43. David walks into the valley to meet Goliath, and Goliath's first words to David are this. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
Goliath is talking about the multiple false gods that the Philistines worshipped. And he's saying to them, my gods are more powerful. My gods deserve the attention. My gods deserve the fame. Your God is not powerful enough. Your God is not strong enough. Your God is not good enough. So my God wins. He's questioning God's character and he's taking the fame God deserves because that's what a real Goliath does. He seeks to rob God of glory. So what about David? How does David compare to Goliath? Well, look at verse 46. This is David's response to Goliath's taunt of of cursing David by his gods. It's David's response. Here we go, verse 46. David says, This day the Lord will deliver you, Goliath, into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. Everybody look up on the screen and read it with me in the yellow. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. What's David after? God's glory. God's fame. Defending God's character. You see, because David knows that real Goliaths push back against God's glory. And in his heart, he is firm and resolute. He wants to make sure God's glory is not questioned or compromised. He faces Goliath for the sake of God's fame. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So, here's my first clue. Here's my first clue when it comes to positioning myself so that God conquers the Goliaths I face. If a real Goliath pushes back against God's glory, then I must be focused on defending God's glory. In other words, my focus must be on God's glory, not my own. My focus must be on God's glory, not my own. I defend His character his fame. And listen close, because this is key. I cannot expect, you cannot expect, remember mismatched expectations, you and I cannot expect that God will conquer Goliaths in our life if we are not focused on his glory. We can't go to God and say, God, I need you. Come alongside, assist me, conquer this Goliath I face because this Goliath is pushing back on my glory, my fame. God says, as we say in Texas, that dog won't hunt. We have to be focused on his glory, not ours. So what does that mean for me? It means that when I seek to determine whether or not I face a real Goliath, an enemy that God wants to conquer, I must ask myself this question. Is this Goliath I face robbing God of glory or is it robbing me of glory? We cannot expect that God will conquer a Goliath that's robbing me of glory. He's not interested. Is this Goliath questioning God's character or mine? Is this Goliath taking attention away from God or away from me? Because if the thing is questioning my character and taking attention away from me, it's probably not a Goliath that God's all that concerned with, and I shouldn't expect that he would intervene. But if God is still in the business of conquering Goliaths, and he is, and there is something in my life that's pushing back against God's character and stealing fame from God, then I am probably facing the kind of Goliath that God is about to conquer. 
We're going to take a look at an example, and for some of you, I'm just going to tell you in advance, this one might sting a little bit. Hold on to your seats. We joked about this a little bit last week, but this is a real situation that happens very, very often in my life. I have people come into my office all the time, and they say this, I have prayed that God would help me make more money, and he isn't doing it. Why won't he conquer my Goliath? Here's my response. First, if you make more than $20,000 a year, you're in the top 3.5% of the most richest people on the planet. Most richest. That doesn't work. If you make more than $20,000 a year, you're in the top 3% of the wealthiest folks on the planet. That's number one. When you pray that God would conquer that Goliath of not having enough money. Second, Your lack of money relative to others around you does not attack God's character, and it certainly does not rob him of fame. So when you go to God and you ask for his intervention, please don't expect much. You know what does question his character and rob him of fame? When you and I are discontent. Because discontentment says, God, you're not enough. I need something else to satisfy me. Do you see how that, that questions his character? See how that pushes back? God, you're not enough. I need something else. And typically, the love of money, not not just having money to be able to feed family and pay a mortgage and that kind of stuff, but the love of money, the love of money says, I want money so I can elevate me. Do you see that's robbing God of the fame he deserves? In other words, the Goliath God wants to conquer in you is not your lack of money, it's your lust for money. So when you go to God and ask him to conquer that Goliath called discontentment, now you might get some traction. That question, and here it is, is this Goliath I face robbing God of glory or robbing me of glory? That's a hard question. That's a hard question. So we got to look hard. We've got to uncover some, some ugly stuff in our hearts sometimes. We have to admit, wow, I'm angry about this because of me, not because of God. That's a difficult question to ask. But it's critical because the answer allows God, not us, to determine what enemies God will and won't conquer. It sets up true expectations. And when we're focused on God's glory, not our own, we take the first step towards allowing God to conquer the true Goliaths we face. So here's my exhortation. Here's my encouragement for you this morning. When you encounter difficulty, challenges, struggles, please don't expect God to intervene and do whatever it is you want. Ask Him. Ask yourself, who is this really about? If it ain't about God's glory, it ain't a real Goliath. Number two, number two, here's how to determine if you're facing a real Goliath. Real Goliaths lie to the people of God. Real Goliaths lie to the people of God. Remember when Goliath begins his taunt of the Israelites? Remember the first time he saunters out into the valley of Elah? And in 1 Samuel 17, 8, pick it up with me. Here's what Goliath says when he walks out into the valley of Elah. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come up to draw for battle? Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Now, we talked about this last week, but remember, who are the Israelites servants of? God. 
Who is Goliath saying they're servants of? Saul. It's a taunt in the form of a bold-faced lie. You know that the original Goliath, the original unconquerable enemy, wasn't a nine-foot-nine giant in the Valley of Elah. It was a serpent in a garden. And the serpent in the garden used the exact same tactic that this Goliath did. He lied to the people of God. He said, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? No, that is not what God said. God said, I can eat of any tree in the garden except for that one. But see, the serpent lies to the people of God. That's what real Goliaths do. So how do I determine if what I face is a real Goliath that God desires to conquer? Ask yourself this question. Is this Goliath I face telling me the truth? Is this Goliath that I face telling me the truth? If you're being told a lie about who you are in Christ about who God is, then you're likely facing a true Goliath. Is your Goliath saying things to you like this? You'll never measure up. That's a lie. God can't heal. That's a lie. Your marriage is doomed. That's a lie. You'll never get out of debt. That's a lie. Your God isn't real. That's a lie. They're all lies. And you've got to know truth and choose truth and resist the liar that tries to get into your head because real Goliaths attempt to rob you of the truth. You wouldn't let a thief into your house and steal your TV. Why would you let a liar into your mind to steal your truth? You say, no, not interested. So, so how? How do you do that? How do you kind of turn up the volume of God's truth and hit mute on the other voices? Well, let's ask the question, WWDD. What did David do? How did David counteract the lies he was being told? Because he faced lies too. His brother Eliab accused him of coming to the, coming to the battlefront to, to kind of, you know, to looky-loo and to rubberneck. The voice of fear, not faith told David, that's Eliab, he said, no way, no how, not you, not now, and David doesn't listen. When Saul says, there's no way you can beat this Goliath guy, David doesn't listen. David listens to the voice of faith, not fear, truth, not lies. How in the world did he do that? How did David block out those voices? Well, in his conversation with Saul, he explains how he did it. Verse 37, and David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David knows that God will conquer because he's done so so many times before. He's able to stand in God's truth because he's already experienced God's truth. He had experienced God's faithfulness so many times before. David remembered that God had delivered in the small things, from the hand of the lion, from the hand of the bear. Certainly God will deliver David from the big things, this Philistine. David, again, chose to turn up the volume of God's truth and hit mute on the other voice. But but check it out, check it out. And this is so fascinating to me. Watch this. Look at verse 54. This is after Goliath is dead. What does David do? Verse 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. I find that interesting. 
Does David expect that he'll grow into Goliath's armor someday? Hey, look, free armor. Goliath's not using it anymore. I'm going to tuck it away and put it in my tent so I'll grow into it when I'm nine foot nine. One day I'll just wear this. No. No. David stood on God's previous faithfulness. He had conquered the lion. He had conquered the bear. Surely he will conquer this Philistine. So when Goliath fell, David kept a reminder in the form of Goliath's armor. He tucked it away. So when the voice of fear came to call, when the enemy whispered a lie about God's character, when David was tempted to believe God wouldn't come through, he could look in his tent at Goliath's armor. 200 pounds of evidence that God does come through and that his word is true. And he could believe in and walk in the truth of God's word rather than the lies that Goliath and others tempted him to believe. I call these things truth tokens. Truth tokens. They're tangible reminders so when a Goliath lies to me, I'm ready to respond with God's truth. So here's my tip. Save up truth tokens. Save up truth tokens. Tangible reminders of God's faithfulness. I want to give you an example. My entire office is filled with little tangible reminders of God's faithfulness. Reminders of friendship, reminders of, of, just, uh, of ways that people have prayed for me and, and friends that I'm reminded to pray for and, and the ways that God has come through. This is one of those tangible reminders. This is one of those truth tokens. Does anyone know what this is? Good, awesome, great, nobody, perfect. Um, this is uh, what's called, I, I don't even know what it's called. I'm going to look it up. It's a club that a Maasai warrior carries. Maasai warrior is an indigenous group of folks in East Africa in the Tanzania and Kenya region. So it's the people that you see, you know, on the front of National Geographic with beads and paint and just indigenous group of folks in East Africa. So uh, about seven or eight years ago, a buddy of mine went to Kenya and he got this from an actual Maasai warrior, which is very interesting to me. Didn't buy it in a market. And he brought it to me and gave it to me as a gift. And, and, you know, the, the time that I had it between about eight years ago and then to, until about two years ago, it was just something I kept on my uh, desk in my office just in case things got out of hand. I could, you know, let them know. But that's what they use it for. They use it to knock out lions and knock out bears. By the way, if this seems, um, if the, the story of David and Goliath, a 12-year-old boy uh, taking down a lion or taking down a bear, if that seems absurd to you, go to Tanzania. See these little Maasai warriors, 11, 12 years old, carrying these bad boys around. You put five bucks on the Maasai warrior, I guarantee you. So two years ago, my wife and I went to Tanzania, and we had an opportunity to visit these little children that we sponsor, a couple little children. And one of the children that we sponsor is named Ingaratani. He's a Maasai. And when he comes of age, at about 11 or 12, he will become a Maasai warrior. He's a shepherd now. He walks five or six miles to school every day and five or six miles home. And I'm reminded to pray for Ingartani when I look at the little truth token in my office. You know what else I'm reminded of? That God provides. That God is faithful. That he's conquered Goliaths for me and my little friend Ingartani that walks to school every day. God is conquering Goliaths on his behalf each and every day day. I've got, a, I've got a tangible reminder 
that I can put my hands on and remember the truth of God's faithfulness. What about you? Do you have tokens of God's faithfulness? Have there been moments in your life where you thought nothing could go well, this is not going to turn out good, and God came through? Tell yourself about it. Tell others about it. And grab a physical reminder that you can look at, that you can touch to remind you of God's truth. How about a dollar bill for when he provided for you financially? How about a bookmark of a Bible verse for when he comforted you during difficulty? How about a picture of a friend on your fridge for when he provided a friend when you really needed one? Hold on tight to those. Because those who stand on God's truth position themselves in such a way that they can conquer the Goliaths that they face. Oh, and by the way, when God conquers that real big Goliath in your life, make sure you grab that armor and put it in your tent. (laughs) So you have a truth token, a reminder of when God came through. Point number three, and, and if anybody leaves early, coming after you, all right? That's, that's not true. Point number three, real Goliaths tempt you, try to draw you into self-reliance, not God-reliance. Real Goliaths tempt you, draw you into self-reliance, not God-reliance. I find God, uh, Goliath's instructions to Israel very interesting. So in his initial taunt, when he walks out into the valley, he tells the Israelites to do this. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Very interesting. The temptation here is to rely on yourself. Rely on your own wisdom. Rely on your best idea. Choose a man for yourselves. Forget God. Just do what you think is best and choose for yourself. Send a man out here. You know those personal Goliaths that we face in our lives, those those enemies that feel unconquerable? They typically do exactly what this Goliath did. They don't don't encourage us to pray. They don't encourage us to seek God. They don't encourage us to rely on God's strength. They say this, do it yourself. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. You don't need God. Come at me. Let's see how it works out. And if you've ever faced Goliaths in your life apart from God, you know that it does not work out well when we rely on self and not God. So how did David do it? How did did David uh, stand on relying on God rather than relying on himself? First, Rather than simply relying on his own strength, David had developed a pattern of long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction. Eugene Peterson wrote a book years ago of the same title. It simply means this, that David had developed a lifestyle of obedience, of God-reliance, and it resulted in victory when he faced Goliath. Remember, everybody remember, long before Goliath showed up, what was David doing? Caring for his father's sheep. And he learned God's faithfulness in those moments. When a lion showed up, when a bear showed up, David conquered them and God was faithful. God delivered. David learned God's faithfulness. And and why did he get an opportunity to face Goliath at all? Because he was carrying groceries to his brothers on the front lines per his father's request. David knew that the big victories, 
The David and Goliath moments are preceded by thousands of smaller but no less important choices to obey, like tending sheep and delivering groceries. David knew that God's biggest doors of opportunity often rest on the smallest hinges of obedience. That's how David developed a life of God reliance. What, what, what if, let's play the what if game. What, what if David had not cared for his sheep to the best of his ability? So, so what if the wild animal attacks and he starts to carry a sheep off and instead of going after it, David says, hey, I'm not risking my life for that little stinker. Like sheep smell, I'm not going after it. He never would have known God's big faithfulness in his small moments of obedience. What if David would have resisted his father's request? I'm not carrying groceries to those punks. They don't like me anyway. He would have missed the opportunity to take down a giant. Thomas Edison once wrote, Opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. I would say the same thing is true for Christians. We miss our opportunity to conquer a Goliath because we're not willing to work hard in the little things to obey God in what seems insignificant, to tend the sheep. We miss these big doors of opportunity that God opens for us because we were unwilling leading up to it to obey God in the little things. Here's, here's, how, I, here's how I say it. If you want to conquer Goliath, you've got to start by carrying the groceries. If you want to conquer a Goliath, you've got to start by carrying the groceries. You've got to be willing, just like David was, to obey in the little things, to tend the sheep. And, and when his dad said, hey, I need you to deliver groceries to the front lines, first thing David did was grab somebody else to fill in to make sure the sheep were taken care of when he left. Small obedience, little things. And he got demoted from shepherd boy to grocery boy. And instead of pushing back and saying, oh, no, no, this is about my fame. This is about my character. He said, oh, no, no, no. It's about God's character. It's about God's fame. I'm after him. So certainly I'll obey in the little things. No problem. I'll carry groceries to my brothers on the front lines. If you want to conquer a Goliath, you have got to start by carrying the groceries. David would have never seen the opportunity to slay Goliath unless he would have obeyed his father. He would have never known God's protection if he had not done his job as a shepherd to the best of his ability. Again, God's greatest doors of opportunity rest on the smallest hinges of obedience. These are the people that God uses to conquer Goliaths, those who learn to rely on him and obey him in the little things. And when a life of regular obedience intersects with God's door of opportunity, giants tend to fall. When a life of regular obedience intersects with God's door of opportunity, giants tend to fall. Finally, and, and I want to I I just throw this your way because it's so important. David's regular pattern of obedience did not result in passivity. Remember, Goliath has marched out into the valley. How many days? Everybody say it with me. Forty. 40. It's, it's, if, if anybody ever asks you that, it's either 3, 7, or 40 in the Bible. Those are always good guesses. So for 40 days, morning and night, Goliath has marched out into the valley and taunted the nation of Israel. And what has the nation of Israel done? Nothing. They were passive. 
They did not act. But David's pattern of obedience, his long obedience in the same direction, obeying in the little things, resulted in faith-based action. The minute he heard Goliath taunt, he said, what are we going to do? Who gets to go? Let no man's heart fail because of him, is what David says to Goliath. I, your servant, will go and fight Goliath. Why? Because I'm tough? No, because I've learned God's pattern already. I've learned God's faithfulness already. So I'm about to take faith-based action to face this Goliath that's walking out into the valley. Here's the tip. If you and I want to conquer Goliaths in our life, we've got to take faith-based action as well. We've got to take faith based action. There's, there are over 50 verbs used for David in 1 Samuel 17. Over 50. He's always doing something. He's always taking faith-based based action. David took, David spoke, David went, David chose. Always taking faith-based action. My personal favorite is verse 48. Look at verse 48. It says, when the Philistine arose and came near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. I love this because I'm a member of SAS, Save the Adverb Society, so I love that there's an adverb here. David ran how? Quickly. He didn't saunter. He didn't mosey. He didn't jog. He ran quickly to meet Goliath. He took faith-based action. Putting ourselves in a position for God to conquer Goliaths means we take faith-based action. We learn God's faithfulness in the little things, and when the big things come along, we say, God promises He'll deliver. And remember, this is an action for our own benefit, but for God's glory. But it's action nonetheless. Again, go, go back to the folks I meet with in my office. I, I hear people say all the time, I want to go into ministry. I want to pursue a dream God has given me. Or my marriage is struggling. Or my business isn't getting off the ground. Or I can't seem to get through the shame of my past. These are the Goliaths that I face in my life. Now, this isn't always the case, but it's sometimes the case where these folks are sitting in my office and I ask them simply this, so what are you doing about it? What, what are you doing about it? You got all these big things that are conquering you and they seem too big to go after and you, they seem invincible. What are you doing about it? And they ask me, about what? I say, about your Goliath. And then I name it, whatever it is they're struggling with, whatever it is that seems too big for God. I say, have you sought counsel? Do you wake up at the crack of dawn to get after what God has called you to? Are you pursuing an education in that field? Do you listen to your spouse's needs? Are you booking counseling appointments? In other words, are you taking faith-based action? And a lot of times the answer is no. I'm waiting on God. Which essentially means I'm sitting on my duff, not doing anything. Doesn't mean that all the time. Please hear me. Just waiting on God doesn't mean that all the time. But a lot of times we use that as an excuse so that we don't have to do anything. But that's not what God calls us to. He calls us to wait, trust in his promises, and when it's time, you move, you act. It's based in faith. Here's how Amy and I say it. We say it this way. We say, do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. Don't look down the road at that big, nasty giant you might have to face. 
Don't try to speculate what might happen, what's worst case scenario. Don't get one of those little worst case scenario handbooks, you know, how to survive a shark attack. You know, don't look down the road and look at that giant that you think you might have to face. Just think this, what is the next right thing? What does God have for me next? Big meeting right around the corner? Stop and say a 30-second prayer. Someone in your life that needs a friend? Just pick up the phone. Struggling with a sin that you can't seem to shake? Book some time with someone you trust. Don't worry about what might happen. Don't worry about down the road. Just do the next right thing. I just read a book called The 10-Second Rule. It says once God reveals something to you of what he's calling you to, make it happen in the next 10 seconds. Just do the next right thing. So David, he learns these patterns of obedience. He obeys in the small things and learns God's big faithfulness in the little things. So when the big thing comes around, it's easy. And he grabs for himself, not easy, but he grabs for himself a truth token that he can stand and a reminder of God's promises. And he takes faith-based action. As I read this story again this week, as I reread 1 Samuel 17 as I'm preparing, it reminded me of actually my very, very favorite poem of all time. It's by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. You know that one? Okay, so here's how Frost concludes his poem. He says, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I could picture David saying to you and me, you know, a long time ago there were two roads that diverged in a yellow wood. And, and, they, and they, kind of, they kind of looked equal and they kind of looked the same and sorry I could not travel both is what Robert Frost says. And, and, and down this way is just letting the sheep go. And down this road is obeying God in the little things. D down this road is saying no to my dad and saying, I'm not willing to carry the groceries. This is a demotion. But down this road was obedience in the little things. And I could picture David saying to us, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. The, the, the road that few people choose, small obedience, Relying on God, not on self. Taking faith-based action. It's the road less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. So here are my questions. Is this enemy robbing God of glory? Is it lying to me? Is it tempting me to rely on myself? It's probably a real Goliath that God wants to conquer. So how do I do it? I focus on God's glory. I live in God's truth. I obey in the small things, and I take faith-based action. These are the kind of people that God uses to conquer Goliaths. As we conclude, we're going to sing one of my very, very favorite hymns. And Melissa and the team, will you guys just come up and lead us as we close together? And let's just bow our hearts and bow our heads before the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for the dads in this place today. Those who are dads now, those who are
granddads and even great-granddads. I thank you for my own dad, for the gift that you've given me in him. God, I thank you even as Kevin reminded us earlier that every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from you, so we don't know anything about fatherhood unless you show us. So God, we are grateful for these dads who who have demonstrated so many of the things that we've talked about today. Obedience in the little things, focusing on God's glory, standing on God's truth, taking faith-based action. God, teach us to be that kind of a person. We're grateful for the dads in this place that model that, and we're grateful ultimately, God, for you and for your son Jesus that models exactly what we saw in David today. God, we just close by giving you the glory that you deserve as we started our message today, talking about the glory you deserve. We give it to you now in song. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and lift our voices to the King.